So I wanted to, uh, hi, I'm, I'm Nelly, I'm in recovery. And I wanted to tell my story like um, a couple of uh, months ago, I was going to tell it from the vantage point of uh, a person who was really sad. Um, and I've been working through a lot of things. So I think I, I, I might, um, I, I might yeah, start from the sunshine and just all of the amazing things that recovery affords me, like a lot of curiosity and a lot of lack of rigid thinking. So yeah, we'll just see where, I, uh, where to start the story because like, you know, I could, could start it from like Friday night, just being, <laughs> um, you know, at a sex club where it seems like everybody was less happy than I was <laughs> because I'm in recovery and because things are uh, like, okay, I, I'll, I'll start where I always start. When I was 14 years old, I had, I ran with a really bad crowd, uh, sorry, good crowd of bad girls. And I was really in love with them. And they were always trying to do things that were sneaky and fantastic. And so um, there's this big hill in my town and it was a wild place where there was a, at one point a six foot wolf, like a wolf that at its, um, uh, like at its shoulders stood six feet that used to ravage the land and steal babies from farmhouses. And there was a, a, an old mansion, the Governor Smith mansion and people in the seventies might've like performed satanic sacrifices there and had like this whole spooky thing. And I used to uh, escape with my friends up on this mountain uh, like all the time. And we would plot our ways of breaking into the world. And so those girlfriends decided that the way to really act like adults was to find uh, the world of drugs and alcohol. And so I was younger than, than they were. I was in grade seven. They were in grade eight. Uh, this is, you know, I, I was like 14. Yeah, we were all about 14. But so uh, they wanted to go to these frat boy parties, these like, you know, Greek parties with like really older guys. And this is something about like growing up in the country is um, <laughs> we had a club, a teen club. And like there'd be like way too old uh, men there, and uh, like we'd and we'd find ways of like spiking the punch or what have you. We thought this was very very adult, and so I went to one of, of like a party where people were drinking when I was really young, and I wasn't allowed to read a book. And my mom is a children's librarian. And instead of like drinking, I read the secret diary of Laura Palmer from the Twin Peaks series, like, you know, like a trashy novel that you could get in uh, like the grocery store or something. And uh, because I read this sexy book, um, I was uh, like, I was grounded. And I told my mom, well, people were drinking at this party. And I did something that, like, you know, that disagreed my mom. So like, uh, I got grounded for, for, you know, reading instead of drinking. So I went, wow, I'm totally allowed to drink. I didn't realize, like, I have total, complete permission to drink. So I'd go to these parties with these beautiful girls, and I think that I could somehow protect them because I was the, that member of the friend, the friend group that, like, you know, it was like 
these 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 friends at all costs and uh like i thought that i could protect them from uh guys getting uh into them so i would go to these parties and i would like get a beer and i would empty it out and i would uh then like very publicly be drinking this beer so that I looked like I was as drunk as my friends. And then I would be able to like be in the same room with them or be able to be like, you know, uh, just keep them from, from uh, guys. But then after a bunch of alcohol, my girlfriends didn't want me around them, them to be protecting them from the attention of like way older fellas. And so that just made me go, okay, well, fine. Um, I'll, I'll just drink too. So we were trying to pretend to be way older than we were. And um, it suddenly became like, that's where it kind of clicked for me. That that was my, like, alcohol was a way into being able to be sexy and free and rebellious. And like, I thought I kind of had permission. So like we'd go over my 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 folks' place because my parents as adult children of alcoholics never drank and never had alcohol in the like like never had like never touched their alcohol. So we of course did the um take uh, take my mother like would would make like rendezaba or some like you know something with rum or something with vodka or we'd we'd entertain people from all over the the, the world and. Uh, so we had like liquor in the liquor cabinet and um my girlfriends and i like you know totally did the uh, rum and uh and, and uh water replacement of the vodka and i want to say like you know just how buttoned up my society was that i was 27 when my mom found me out i was 14 at the time that i stole the vodka i was 27 when they noticed the vodka was missing like when, when it was like, you know, so watered down with uh, water. So then about uh, about the same age, um, my mother being a librarian, we went to uh, children's literature in England. And um, I, my, my, my elder sister was going to be living in Scotland and I got to go and uh, check things out for her and like meet my mom and drive um, up up the UK and Scotland to where my sister was going to be living. She fell in love with an exchange student at summer camp. You know how people love camps. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've heard that a lot. <laughs> and uh, um, so we went to Children's Literature in England and I went to the uni club. Uh, well, you know, I hadn't had my, my big adventures, but people who were teenagers like I was in Scotland were drinking. Um, like we were drinking everywhere, but it's really hard in the States. In the States, you have to be 21 to get alcohol. So you have to be with people who are like way older it, and they're really strict about it. And like, you have to do sort of favors for shoulder tapping as my girlfriends would. And like, yeah, shoulder tapping means like setting aside and getting some alcohol that way. So I, um, I go to this club with these uh, family members and the the boy that my sister's in love with in, in Scotland. And uh, we get there to the door, like the bouncer at the door is like, you know, asking like, am I 18? And I say, no, I'm 19. And I walk right in and my friends are just like, oh, I thought you were 14. And I was like, uh, no, I just say that because I have a boyfriend back in the States. And like, I just don't want him to get jealous. <laughs> so I just tell people I'm, I'm way underage. 
They're like, yeah, totally snorted. <laughs> totally, totally, like I was being so amazing. So I get to the club and um, um, it's really, really grand. And I drink some terrible, uh, like kids in the hall would say, like girl drink drunks, you know, these like blue balls, like curse out, nasty kinds of things. But then somebody gets, uh, gets me some ecstasy because it's a club. And um, yeah, suddenly like everything is like a brand new level of, uh, of, of just whole wildness. And around that time, I think, you know, all of my friends were older. Everybody was sort of like filing into this uh, like worldly, uh, I don't know, like terrible house and club music and things like that. But uh, I just felt like I was initiated into something so much older than I was. I just wanted to be older so, so badly. And so uh, like, uh, yeah, so that's what I started um, really sneaking out and really doing things. And like, I was such, such a, uh, a, a repressed good kid that they would give me things like hall monitor jobs at my, um, at my primary school and my elementary school. And like, I would just send people out to get cigarettes, like so that they could smoke cigarettes. And I got to be like this badass, but I was also a child. So like, I felt freaking in love with that. And that's like the world that uh, drugs and alcohol opened up to me. It's like, I was suddenly so, everyone was so happy to see me because I was always holding or I was, or like wherever the party was, was where I was. And um, I, while I was in high school, in, in Ireland, they call it the fifth year, but it's uh, you know junior year of, of high school. Um, I, I walked off to the West Coast and um, because I wanted to be a journalist and I wanted to go to the best public high school in the country to be a journalist because what I wanted to do is I wanted to just collect people's stories and uh, yeah and, and that's what I wanted to do like I, I was just like a very uh, social and interested and bookish and awkward until I was like dancing and on drugs and then everybody just wanted to be my friend <laughs> and so when I was on the West Coast, I sort of started, it was part of this like ring of clubs and like I was, I was like really, like I wasn't old enough to be doing this kind of thing, but like there was a Saturday market in Eugene and I was friends with all these people from the university and I like, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, if you needed acid, you could find me. And like, that's as much implication I'll give, give to myself. But I also was like kind of running this like mixtape uh, DJ thing, uh, like over over mixtapes we would send, and we would just write magnetic media, do not X-ray, and somehow like somehow people were getting things from uh, Minnesota to Oregon to all sorts of places like that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, I'm. Let's see. Or, um, Oregon. Uh, great, it was a great, uh, a great place in the story. So um, I just was like a legend in my own mind, but it was because I was like fiercely lonely and I wouldn't tell anybody what my age was. And so I would go and I'd get myself to some pretty dicey situations, pretty interesting situations because uh, yeah, I just wanted to be older and do fun things. 
And when my parents weren't around anymore, I could be um, pretty wild. And I wasn't in school for a while, and I was trying to get back into school, and I was working for the software company. Like, I just, like, I don't know, began, began the whole BFD sort of meltdown. <laughs> um, but really at the center of that was, uh, like, I liked people, and so I'd promote a lot of parties, and I'd be friends with all of these DJs and all of these collectives, and it all just seemed like some sort of grand utopia. I went back to, um, I went back to graduate from high school back to Vermont, um, and, you know, I was kind of miserable because I couldn't, couldn't be contained anymore. And so I led a really secret life of um of pain <laughs> um but okay then i went to school and um i could drink like a man and i was very popular because i um because of yeah because i threw parties and i uh and like you know everybody just kind of worshipped the idea of the fun never ending and it was a very hard school and um too clever and so yeah, um, I was I was doing some really dangerous stuff, but I never got caught for it. And I always was hanging out with people who seemed like they were much worse off. So I got to hide in that alcoholic niche. Like there were a couple of friends of, from friends of mine from school who found the rooms, and of course I didn't want anything to do with them once they found the rooms. But they did extreme stuff, and I I couldn't see that. What I did as extreme as like what they would do, you know, they, you know, they showed their pain a lot more on the surface than I. Um, but then, you know, I had this fabulous career in college as somebody who could just like the party can keep going. And then when I graduated and like life began for everybody else, it didn't. And that failure, it didn't begin for me. And that failure to launch and like, you know, I, I, uh, I met my, my partner in the, um, in the lesbian bar, you know, I was dancing in the lesbian bar as the Jonathan Richmond song goes. And, um, you know, also young and throwing parties and, um, and uh, I really didn't want this person to the person that I ended up with to be a man, but it ended up that way. And I was really like, you know, chasing his girlfriend at the time. But whatever, that's that that's part of my story. That's more uh like how do you get people intoxicated so that they'll make out with you? Like so that they'll shift you. So like you know, that's a that's a pretty bad part of my history as well. Anyway, so uh yeah, as things got as I got older, it got less cute. And I was the only one who was still hanging around and still partying and still drinking like I'm a college student and still um, trying to cover up a lot of pain and a lot of disappointment. And like the limo never arrives. It was just one of those experiences where like, wait, 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 wait. my real life is about to begin and I'm about, about to be recognized for everything and it's all going to take off. And it never happened. And fear just increasingly kept taking the mic on my actions and on my life. Like, oh, I totally like wanted to quit so many times and I 
as performative as I am, was able to, um, like, you know, just show people how, like, you know, if I quit for a month, you definitely know about it, right? Or if I were, were giving up things or um, <laughs> celebrating Shabbos, I don't know. It would just be nice and performative. And it would seem like I didn't have a problem. I just was in a bad relationship or I was just, uh, you know, I like I was just getting a, a, a bum deal. And I really appreciate the expression, if you had my life, you'd drink too. Because that poor me, poor me, poor me, another, like that manipulation, like I got so much free stuff for how pathetic I am. <laughs> I really was able to, to, to work that one quite well. Um, and uh, yeah, Ooh, so much, so much. And uh, yeah, poor me, poor me, like, oh no, come over to my house, we'll drink a bottle of wine. Like, oh, that sounds awful. You just, you know, just come sit by me, Nelly, and like, it'll all be, it'll all be grand. Um, because, you know, a part, a, a part of my lonely childhood and my loneliness, my exceptionalism is just that it doesn't, it gets covered up, but it doesn't go away. I have like a fire in my head all the time. I just try to rage over it and like go bigger. And so as I like moved into my 20s and even 30s, this became such a not attractive portrait of a person anymore. I mean, used to be back in the day, people would, I like to say this because it's like, you know, it happened once at a party that people were lining up to hold my hair as I puked. That everybody was just like, you know, oh, it's also uh, dancing queens, <laughs> just glittery and lovely and uh, um, legend in my own mind kind of thing. And I, I really appreciated it. And if you fast forward to the end of my drinking career, it had none of those glamorous or sexy or interesting aspects. It was just really the portrait of a pathetic person who was racing to the end of her day and disappointed when she wasn't there. Just completely disappointed that all of this, all of the antics that I pulled were all of the stuff, all of the bigness that I had wasn't resulting in what I could do, which was to um, not be around anymore. And everything looked like that. Just racing to the end of the day was a little bit of a, like a death, like there was so much boredom. I drank because I was bored. I drank because I wasn't bored. You know, I drank because I was excited. Um, but mostly like when I had a job that I cared too much about that wasn't getting me anywhere, I would just be like, okay, how do I figure out the circadian rhythms of how, uh, like, yeah, of like how I can be just like on my, uh, like in my best lecture mode by like 10 a.m. And if I like drink this much and I do this much and I do this kind of thing, then I will be able to pass out by 9 p.m. and I'll be able to wake up at five. And, you know, that was a, that was a whole other story like waking up when I, I mean, I can, I can draw some of the portrait of it, but it would be dark. I wasn't allowed to 
put my 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 dog on a leash i was uh, and like i had to put in like a certain amount of time in my household in order to show that i wasn't i don't know an animal abuser so i had to wake up at four and like walk my dog for an hour without a leash in the country where there was skunks and like cars and what have you just by like vocal command in like snow and the door would be locked on me um like when i left so that i couldn't come in until a certain time passed you know those kind of control things i mean that's just like one little example but i had um i, I lived in a i lived under a lot of rules oh and um i drank over those too because a lot of what I did, I couldn't get out from under bad things that I'd done in the past in my in, in, in my relationships. That's what happens when you get together with somebody when you're 20 or 21. It's like um, they just don't forgive things that you did when you were 24, when you're 36. You know, like that's that's part of my my problem, <laughs> part of my uh, whole cocktail of uh, problems as well. So um, it got uglier it got worse and uh until finally uh finally at the very end of all things i was so like mentally unwell that finally i was getting some uh some diagnoses for that and i had a therapy animal which was the most amazing thing i and i advocate for anybody from their madness and their upset and their fear to be able to have that kind of uh, experience and training and loveliness of having somebody who is helping me out um, through through my days. But I I ended my drinking career by trying to not exist anymore, and things were not going well in my relationship, and I had cut ties with my family, and I had no friends left because my former relationship didn't like my friends and didn't like my family and um i'm a, a very social person and i all i could do was just mess up it seemed and uh i've described this before to many people about how i was living I mean, nobody would know i lived in a place with lots of firearms and totally remote, I, uh, a, a real 10-minute drive to get to any food and um, a probably about a half an hour drive from a restaurant where I could eat. And um, I, you know, tended my gardens and put put food by and <laughs> made my own station wheat, like wheat meat and whatever, and all of these homesteading kind of things. It was nuts. It was nothing. Kimmy Schmidt in the bunker for, for a while at the end. Um, and I didn't even know that. Like, I didn't know that there were any other kinds of options. So I made my attempt to uh, leave. Because, like, for me, like, the, the, the first, when you have no skills, no tools, like, the first thing that you think is a pretty extreme reaction to a maybe figure an outable situation, but for me, it just didn't seem that my parents and my and my former would stop fighting and that I was sort of down the middle. And so I tried to do something. And then the next day, 
I went to a meeting because I was in graduate school and there was this meeting in a barn and there was an author that I really admired who was going to that meeting. And there were two people, three people in that meeting and it, it was meeting in a barn. And uh, we read just for today, uh, like maybe step one or something like at a 12 and 12 or like, and uh, people told their stories. And I said my name and the author was just like, you know what, like, what do your parents call you? I'm like, Nellie. And they're like, she said, I like Nellie. Why don't you just be Nellie from now on? And I'm like, okay, yeah. Because those who have, uh, those who have loved me have called me Nellie. So I gave up my like, you know, professional full name, which maybe people would know me by. And uh, I started to, um, I started to get better almost immediately because I didn't realize that there had been any other options. I didn't realize that there was a way of, um, well, I mean, come on, I, I am like everyone else. I thought, oh, uh, nobody who's exciting doesn't drink. Nobody who is beautiful doesn't do drugs. Nobody who's fun. Is going like I don't want freaking serenity, and I was actually like um, in a meeting in Cork the other day. Well, the Zoom meeting in the court in Cork the other day, so it was like I'm like I want serenity, and my girlfriend was like, "No, you don't. <laughs> like, stop lying. No, you don't. That's not what you want. But you want to not drink today. It's like, yeah, you know, that's 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 probably a little more accurate. So uh, I I found the rooms. And I cried my way into to it. And there was this uh, lovely woman there who said, uh, like, uh, you know what you do now? I'm like, no, like, it's just like, you go to another meeting. And I went, what? Like, it was just this magical, like, little barn sort of scenario. It was like, I was, I, I was cured, it's converted, right? <laughs> so that was totally confusing for me. And uh, so, so Julia brought me to this uh, this meeting in downtown, like uh, uh, um, in downtown Middlebury, Vermont. And uh, like I didn't know like about like when they passed the hat, I was like, okay, this is some weird kind of tithing thing. Um, and so I like put in like a five or a ten or <laughs> like what? Like I have no idea this this church. Um, so that was kind of funny as well. And then um, I started talking to, to this woman after the meeting, and it turned out that she, her mom had been the registrar of my tiny little college, and it turned out that she had um, owned a restaurant where I had worked, and it turned out that we had all of these like connections. And I'm like, this is so embarrassing. I can't be in a small place and be an alcoholic. And she's like, but I don't even know you. And like nobody, nobody knows you. It's not that small a place. Like if you're finding help, and uh, she made me become like her sponsee that night. And I was like, well, what does this entail? And she said, you have to call me for the, you know, you have to call me at first. I'm like, when? And she's like, all the time. And she was like, whenever. Like whenever you need me to uh, need to call me. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. And she's like, you have to write uh, three gratitude to me every night or somebody's coming for you and that was the most amazing feeling I have to say 
was when I was so low and so alone and, and desperate and at the end that somebody would say, if you don't write to me, there are going to be people who care about you. There are going to be people who want you to be okay and they're going to come for you. So um, that was a, an extraordinary thing. And like, I didn't even want to test it because I didn't want to be disappointed that someone wouldn't be coming to my house. So I became an incredible, beautiful soldier of, uh, of, um, of recovery at the, at the moment. I was like, okay. And, um, and my share was fantastic. She had been uh, a bartender and a, uh, a religious studies major. And so she was like, really, like, she was just hardcore. She was punk. And she was a grandmother at a, a, and like, didn't look like she was at, like, had the same insides that I did. She didn't look like she was somebody who had the kinds of pain. And like the exact same size pain that I had. And so um, I had been told by somebody in the program, like, you know, that the sponsors, like your mechanic, don't ask them for where you can get your hair done. They, they, they are just like your menu advisor. I mean, it's not, it's not a relationship where you have to feel like you are kowtowed or that you are um, desperate. As a friend of ours here in Tisura says, you've suffered enough, and there's no reason to like you know suffer in recovery because you're not brave. You can find or see sunshine or or see things that that, that were never uncovered before. So um, that was it was really something like um, share the way uh, you should right before left for Ireland this time. So um, it was essential that I had a connection no matter what. And like to be able to keep a connection no matter what other rely on the one person is my story in being, you know, like living in a bunker, right? To be if I had done something that I considered shameful, she would say, we do that. Or she'd say, if there's a name, if somebody else has done it, then we can figure it out. And um, at the like, early recovery, I met some of the most beautiful women I've like I call them the women who raised me. Some of them, <laughs> some of them this and some of them have mullets, and some of them have like you know, like other people might not see them as the most beautiful women in who raised me were like um, astounding. And I say I, I say all the time that I learned many things at, at Church of Stacy. And Stacy would tell you it's like <laughs> never ever ever tell tell what she says. Stacey, but this is this is where I first learned self-care is when she would say make it a thing like you deserve some some time to go to sleep make it a thing like put yourself to bed 
Give yourself some like lovely tea. Give yourself some lovely music. Give yourself the golden girls. Give yourself whatever you want that is just comfortable and safe and gorgeous. Is my is my audio okay? I'm not sure is there something going on? You're okay. Um anyway, so Stacy would Stacy and I met at a um there was a, a, a treatment center for women in my town where I decided to move in recovery. Like I decided to move to a town for recovery purposes, which was really cool that uh, I was looking at apartments and uh, Stacy like stopped her car and got out of the car and said, I know that I see that you're on a phone call, Nellie, but I just want to make sure that you're okay. <laughs> never, like I was talking to friends like, you know, Boston or something like that, but I had never, Someone just show me that kind of care. Like, you know, you probably get the superficial, like, are you, are you all right? Like, how's it going? Or like, you know, yeah, you probably get the, how's it going? But this woman, like, actually, like, on me, like, recognized me as a person of and just, like, stopped and got out and went, like, like, what's up with you? And, like, people showed an interest in me that I went, what? Like, you know, like I thought that I was like this grand lover and that I like, you know, feel so deeply and that I cared about people. But um, the more that like my sort of self-centered addiction was revealed to me, the more I realized that I just actually hadn't ever thought to get out of a car and like ask if somebody's doing okay <laughs> or like genuinely like, you know, it's, it seems like a superficial level that people want to make sure that I am okay, that I that I that I don't drink today, and that there's sobriety that my sobriety matters to them. That's like okay, um, unbelievable. Um, I'm not very quick to trust on that one, <laughs> but then I was just showed a kind of care and a kind of love and a kind of way of just taking care of myself and like you know little little mantras like self-care is never selfish treat yourself like somebody who's really sick and like deserves to be like nurture, um, how would you nurture your best friend how would you treat someone how would you treat yourself if you were very sick and like really it's important better because there's something on the other side of you being sick like, how would you start to take all of that negative stuff, which really is founded when you are playing and masking and trying to be something just um, get a fix out of it. So um, the structure of people actually care about you was hard for me to accept. But then as soon as I tried to do it the other way, like really care if somebody was in a meeting or if somebody shared or if somebody um, didn't drink, like I looked around the room and I just saw people's faces as like, like holy, it was like not in a like uh, formed religious sense, but it was like, how did they do that? How did they get here? What's the, the probability 
that all of them are not dead too. Like I pretended like I was dead and that I wanted to be dead and that I didn't want to be dead. And here I am in a meeting. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> an, amazing, um, an amazing progression to me and something that I just had no idea how to uh, um, how to process. And then I started caring like a little, little bit. Remember, they, they say, we're going to love you until you learn how to love yourself. So I had like work to do. Like everything was freaking work. And I had to um, really be serious about this because the self-deception, the self-deception part, like the like getting off of the treadmill kind of thing is so easy for a cat. I, I don't know. I, like for a person who likes their comforts and their luxuries and, and you know for pleasure as I, as I do right like it's um it's very easy to stop doing good habits well Mitch Hedberg comedian said it's as easy to start flossing as it is to quit smoking right like good habits are not are not natural and so to be shown love and, and care, and then to be able to give it back. I ran with a new crowd of like incredibly beautiful women who were beautiful to me. And we would do all sorts of healthy, sober things like yoga and retreats and walks in the woods and climbs up, up, up mountains. And we would have like a pagan women's meeting up on a mountaintop and we would have like the equinox together. And we became like very woo woo. And as some of you know, like, you know, I do tarot and um, uh, meditation. I was somebody like, if anybody ever tried that five minutes or sorry, 30 seconds of sitting with just your thoughts and breathing, like I, would, I had a director once, I was in 12th night in Santa Fe. And like I had a director who wanted us to breathe and I was like, bullshit. <laughs> you know, I breathe when I'm smoking. <laughs> come on, like, come on. It's not, um, yeah, I, I was so resistant to things that were healthy or things that were nice. Because I thought that I would never be able to get my passions and like, you know, my, 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 my gloriousness ever again. So I did not want serenity. I actually did come into these rooms very like, uh, no, I think that every organized religion is anti-female. I think that it is bad to, like it, it is um, what I do in addiction is to be stoic in my emotions or like, you know, reject my emotions. And there are like, you know, very helpful things that I've heard even concerning that. You know, I had this sort of Charles Schultz scene of um, how we treat our emotions and like, you know, is it uh, like, like kicking the football? It's when, if a child came up to you crying and wanting something and needing something, would you boot them? And that's the way that I dealt with my emotions is I did not caretake to finer parts of me. I rejected them like a, a child that was coming to me and crying. And uh, it was powerful when I realized that that's not how my emotions work. You know, I thought that it was really cool to be hard, really good to be hard. I, I counted it once, but it had been seven years since I cried. 
and I tried so hard to just be um, like to, to drink to sort of resist being drunk. Did that kind of thing, like you know, like very publicly tolerance filled. Like I would drink so that I could resist how how, how, how drunk I felt. And so I had a tremendous amount of work to do trying to make my life something that was like could be stitched into some sort of semblance of a life. Um, because I, I mean, they say you come in with the gift of desperation and that's such a great gift. But every time I'd have to reset the day and tell myself like, in Zen, in Zen Buddhism, the um, as soon as you've got the idea, the master will like. Um, well, I have time. story. I was in Japan with a group of students that I brought over um, in a world religions class. And, uh, I was with this uh, great kid who's on the spectrum, a very concrete thinker, and we were looking at this statue called the the Nine Stones in Kyoto or something, and. Uh, uh, if you go from one angle, you can see eight stones. If you go from another angle, you can see a different eight stones because one stone like includes another stone um, by, by the way that they're set up. So we're looking at this, we're contemplating this together. And like I'm having this like great Zen epiphany. And um, uh, I, I go, wait, wait, wait. I'm the ninth stone. I take my experience from like here to here and I carry that stone with me. And I'm having like this Zen moment of enlightenment. And this kid, like with his backpack, hits me with his backpack and goes, think again. And the master they, uh, will hit you with the Roshi stick when you think that you've gotten too comfortable, when you think that you, you, you've got it. Um, and that was the moment as a teacher where I realized that, like, you know, the, the, uh, the, 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 the Ronin had really become the, the, the master because there's so much that I think that I'm having this great epiphany. I'm having this amazing experience like, oh, wow, um, couldn't get any better. And it's good to be hit by the backpack because then I get to think again. I'm not stuck. I'm not baked. I'm not done. If I had only the tools that I had five years ago, it would be, I would have nothing. If I had only the tools that I have today, I would have today. <laughs> so I mean, like, it's, it's really, really, really easy for me to see that uh, recovery is how I can start to, uh, like, is, is the only thing that will give me a life. That much is pretending and misery and sets me down a dark path. And uh, today, I want something else. And that's a really hard trick for me. Like, I, I'm codependent and from system of control and it's very hard for me to figure out what I want and I'm really terrible at making decisions so if any of you are involved in my decision making I apologize to you in advance just like take the reins when we are parking or when we need to like pull the trigger on something because I can't do it I, I will sort of vacillate and get scared and like you know uh, flake out so now you know me <laughs> um, 
But the idea that I can build this into a life, that I can do something that it isn't, it isn't how I thought. And then now think again, oh wait, no, it, it wasn't what I thought. It's all this lovely improvisational yes and. And I uh, should find it because I, I, I like the idea so much, but it's how that uh, woman who brought me to recovery ends one of her books is on this uh, Rilke concept that there's nothing that you can do, there's no art that you can do so perfectly. You know, we say there's only one step that you can do and that's the first step and it's the only one that you can do perfectly. And perfect, I don't like it means that, you know, it's done, it's the end of it. There's only one thing that you can, there's only one art form that you can do perfectly, like unarguably, and that's to live one's life as a work of art. And so that's what we do here. That's what this experience is for me, is uh, ever-changing. It's a beautiful little chimera. But um, I had a lot of pain and I'm learning how to make friends with that pain or see that pain differently or take that plane out pain out to coffee. I think it even drinks coffee differently than I do. I like it black. I think my coffee, I, I think my pain has my coffee with all sorts of <laughs> other things in it. Um, but yeah, I want to figure out what little steps I can do today to live this life as a work of art. And the main way that I've learned through all of this is caring about you is thinking about other people and getting to be able to come to a meeting and getting to be part of a fellowship. And uh, yeah, that's that's what I would be losing if I drank today, is I would be losing all of your stories and all of your strength and everything that just fortifies me. So um, I'm, I apologize if there's been any technical difficulties but um, I'm very happy to uh, end my talk now, just sort of thinking of you. And um, uh, thank you, Megan, and thanks for the 11th hour and, um, and everything for, for it to have been working out. Take care.